morning, everybody, and welcome to episode 18 of the How's My Hand Path podcast. This week on the show, we have another junior specialist on by the name of Michelle Holmes. Some of you may know her from social media. Some of you might actually have kids who work with her. Uh, she's absolutely phenomenal with young children, and we dive into a lot of detail about um, parents and how to deal with uh, kids playing sports and all of that. So really good episode. Um, we've kind of been delayed the last couple of weeks with our monthly mailbag, so um, we're going to do that this week. I made sure my brother, who's the producer of the show, did not brief me on the questions. Uh, I'd rather it be kind of natural. So if you do see me take maybe an extra second to answer the questions, because I want to make sure I'm doing the best of my capabilities for you guys. Uh, so yeah, let's get started, Brandon. What's up? Um, let me see here. Okay, first question. Do I need to hit down on the ball to get more spin? Okay, this is um, obviously a scientific question. So the person saying, do they want to hit more down on the ball? They're meaning, do they want to get their angle of attack more down into the ground in order to spin the ball more? In a very simplified explanation, spin is created by something called spin loft. So people automatically jump to the spin rate of uh, the golf club or the ball when they're looking at TrackMan numbers, for example. Uh, spin rate is determined by a ton of things. It's determined by uh, external factors as well, such as like how clean are your grooves, um, you know, if you're using a premium ball or not. So there's a lot of things that are going to influence the spin rate. If you are talking about how to increase or decrease your spin through the actual technique outside of those external variables, you have to analyze something called spin loft. So spin loft in a very simplified manner is the difference between the loft you're delivering at impact, which is called dynamic loft, and something which is the angle of attack, which is whether you're hitting up or down on the ball. So the angle between those two variables will determine your spin loft. Now, assuming your dynamic loft does not change, Meaning, if I was delivering, let's say, 54 degrees of loft on a sandwich, which is pretty static, well, if you are still delivering 54 degrees of loft at impact, which is, again, the dynamic loft, but the um, angle of attack actually goes down, meaning you're hitting more down on the ball, or I should say the angle of attack steepens, then you are going to spin the ball more, which is fine. But if you hit more down on the ball, but while that is happening, you are also delivering less loft at impact. The angle of the face is not pointing as much to the sky. It's pointing more down into the ground now. Well, if the two are proportionally going down by the same amount, then you are actually not increasing your spin loft, meaning you're going to spin the ball the same amount. So it is not about hitting down on the ball that increases your spin rate. It's about the relationship between those two variables. I could actually increase my spin rate by hitting the exact same amount with the angle of attack, but by actually delivering more loft. Meaning, let's say I'm coming into the ball very neutral, so I'm not hitting down on it, I'm not hitting up on it. My angle of attack is zero, okay? Well, if I was delivering 50 degrees of loft before, meaning the angle of my club face was pointing 50 degrees to the sky. And now on the second swing, I'm again, I kept my attack angle the exact same, but I'm hitting uh, now 54 degrees of loft at impact. Well, I'm actually increasing my spin rate without hitting more down on the ball. Because again, that relationship is widening, right? My spin loft was 50 before, now it's 54. So when you are looking at trying to create more spin, it's not about hitting down on the golf ball. It's about understanding the relationship between the loft you're delivering and the attack angle and how those two change. That's what's going to change your spin loft. Again, spin rate has everything to do with that. But spin rate is also determined by other variables, which is why I tend to look at spin loft more when we're talking about whether a player is changing their technique to increase or decrease spin. Very cool. Um, that was interesting. Next question. Whose job is it to teach course etiquette? Very um, interesting question. Yeah, that is a good question, actually. Whose job is it to teach course etiquette? Uh, I think every single person involved in golf in that player's circle who is the person in question. Meaning, I think that 
their playing partners, if the person has bad etiquette, I think the playing partners 100% has a duty to say, look, you know, maybe it's not right to walk on my line when I'm putting, or maybe it's not right to talk in the middle of my backswing or to yell profanities. I know sometimes people drink and have fun on the golf course, which is fine. And you can have all the fun in the world within your circle, but don't start deterring people around you and other groups on other holes from playing good golf or distracting them or whatever. I also think it's the duty of a coach to tell uh, their student if they're showing poor etiquette that, look, this is uh, maybe not the best thing here. Uh, you know, maybe your divot pattern can get a little bit better or, you know, maybe you shouldn't be throwing clubs on the floor if you're pissed off after a shot or whatever the case may be. I'm trying to run through the scenarios in my head of what people yeah, are every, doing. Everybody knows someone who has poor etiquette. And I think, like you said, it's, um, it's everyone's job to kind of enlighten that person to what's expected of them when they're playing golf. And at the same time, how that etiquette affects, I mean, the, the, that etiquette is there for a reason, right? It's, it's to make the round more enjoyable. And at the same time, it's to protect the, the rules and the game. So I also think it's, um, you know, people automatically assume it's the job of the superintendent or the marshal to do all the work and tell people stuff. But at the same time, I think it's our own right, uh, or I should say our own duty as players to like, take care of the environment that we're dealt. So if you're out on the golf course with a golf cart, you can have all the fun in the world and you can drive fast if you want, as long as you're not harming the course and destroying the grass or uh, you're not driving your cart into a tree or into the water. I mean, I've literally seen so many bad videos on the internet oh, of, of poor etiquette. But like the idea is don't wait up on the marshal or the course superintendent to come tell you that you're doing something wrong. If you see something that's maybe not the best, either contact the marshal if the person is refusing to listen to you or try to, you know, take the matter into your hands as much as possible without, I guess, starting into an argument. or a Yeah, I mean, it's all about respect. Respect the course, respect the people behind you, in front of you, respect your friends. And, and I will say that it's about maybe point, point, uh, sorry, 0.001% of people that I've seen who have really bad etiquette to the point where like you need to call in someone more often than not. It's like maybe some stupidities, which is fine among friends. Uh, but in extreme cases, I mean, it happens so little. But yeah, it's I would say it's the job of everybody around that person in question. And guys, please silence your cell phones. I can't tell you how many times I've played in a foursome with people and their cell phone goes off in the middle of my swing, in the middle of my putt. The worst part is like it's not even that hard to do and you can keep your phone on vibrate no one's telling you to put your phone away or turn it off just put it on silent i mean yeah. it's really not that complicated yeah. okay i think we answered this question yep where on the fingers should the club rest in both left and right hand all right i'm gonna make this answer short and sweet it is extremely subjective there are guys on tour who have the club very in their fingers and who have very very strong grips uh one of those players would be brendan Steele. Works with my friend Chris Mason, who's coming on the show sh soon enough. Um, he has a super strong grip, but it works for his pattern, and it's functional, and it delivers a good face-to-path number at impact, which is all you're kind of dealing with here for curvature. Um, there are also players with extremely uh, weak grips, like one of my students. Um, I can name actually a handful, but let's just say Dylan Wu, who is fifth on the Corn Ferry Tour money list, who I work with, and he has a very weak grip. If you see it, you would be like, holy wow, if I had the grip in that position, most high handicappers would probably slice the ball. But he matches it with the appropriate wrist angles, uh, and it's a little more in the palm of his hands. So there is no such thing as um, a set standard. It really depends on the pattern of the player. As long as it works in tandem with other pieces in the golf swing, you're fine. Nice. Um, what's your most impactful tool or person, etc., that you use to understand the golf swing? Yeah, that's a pretty easy answer, and it is TrackMan. <laughs> uh, there is no variable tool, person, or anything in the world outside of a launch monitor that can give a coach the numbers that they need to dive into more subjective micro details. Now, I argue your cell phone would help you. My cell phone would probably be second, to be honest. I think the cell phone is extremely important. I use it a lot for video. Um, I capture video a lot in all my lessons. I mean, I'm not the kind of coach who's just going to watch and talk. I, I do capture video. I like showing students visual changes that we're making because a lot of people are very visual learners. But I will say TrackMan as the number one answer for one reason. Um, and I, and I want to clarify this, actually. TrackMan is a really bad tool if you do not understand the numbers. 
Okay, so I want to make this clear. I don't think any random consumer can grab a TrackMan and go out and hit balls and look at the numbers and necessarily understand what's going on. They are very complex. They are very detailed. Even trying to look at the definitions on the website is going to confuse you. But as a coach, if you have the fundamental understanding of these numbers and how they relate to the player's golf swing, TrackMan is one of the best tools you can have to quantify very small changes you're making with players. You don't need a TrackMan to fix a slicer who's a 35 handicap. A guy who comes in and sees me who shoots 110, I do not need a TrackMan to tell him what he's doing wrong. I don't even need TrackMans probably for people who are over the handicaps of 10, honestly. But once you get down to the micro details of the single digits who want to become a scratch and to the pros especially that I deal with where we're trying to cut out a quarter of a stroke around or half a stroke around, which is literally everything when it comes to pro golfers, then TrackMan is a super useful tool. I'm working with, with that student, Dylan, that I just mentioned. I'm working on uh, increasing his spin rate by about 500 to 1,000. There is no way you can tell looking at a golfer swing, no matter how talented the coach is, that you're increasing his spin rate by 500 just by looking at him swing. But you, if, when you understand how those numbers are being delivered and you understand what it takes to get that number higher, then you can use TrackMan to quantify and validate the changes you're making. It's a validation tool as much as anything else to say, look, I'm working with the student on this. We have the proof mathematically. I'm quantifying that his club and speed was 117. Now it's 118. Or his spin rate was 7,000. Now it's 7,500. So TrackMan is the answer there. Perfect. Yeah, TrackMan definitely has, I think, the technology to to support anything that you're saying. Yeah. Um, how to go from technical work to playing without thinking of mechanics? How can I play without thinking? Okay, so I, I just had this conversation with uh, Baden, who is the guy who runs our online lesson platforms, Killist. I am a big believer in using your pre-shot routine to your advantage to um have many areas of thought without making your swing get too mechanical on the golf course the pre-shot routine is one of the very very few controllable environments you have in the game of golf there is no ball being struck assuming that you are playing up to the pace of the people around you and the groups around you you can take your time with the pre-shot routine obviously don't make it extreme and make it five minutes but you can take 45 seconds to a minute and what you can do in that pre-shot routine is you can use that as a means to exaggerate whatever feel you're working on that day. Find one feel that relates to your golf swing that will make it better and run with that feel and exaggerate that feel before every ball in that controllable environment. If you look at the pros on TV, a lot of them are doing that. Justin Rose has that squatting move he does a lot. Uh, where he's trying to keep his hand path in a lot a lot of times you see obviously everybody knows the famous alex norin drill of like the hand path exiting really aggressively to the left for a right-handed player so he's trying to keep the face passive and all that uh there's a lot of them that i can show you tiger typically will do some exaggerated drill recently it's been that he's trying to get into his right hip a little better in the backswing and um retain forward bend on the way down so not early extend their spine tiger has a tendency of extending the spine because of the steep shaft he has um so there's a lot of tour players that are doing this and and obviously i would highly suggest that for everybody you know like i said it's a very controllable environment don't go out there and make some lazy non-focused kind of half-assed practice swing that has no intent or no purpose use that as a way to exaggerate the feel so that when you're on the golf ball the feel is so fresh in your system that your chances of recreating it on the actual ball are much higher i don't want you to get mechanical and start thinking about like oh if i don't achieve position a and position b and position c i'm not going to hit the ball well because then you literally will not hit it well but if you're working on two or three changes, find the one that is going to have the biggest effect on your golf swing and a positive for a positive outcome and run with that feel nonstop. And it's you and your coach's job. It's my job as much as anyone else to tell the player, look, this is the feel I want you to run with in your pre-shot routine. Use this every single time. You will hit the ball better. You won't get too mechanical. You don't want to completely forego all the changes you made and not think about anything. But at the same time, you don't want to get too mechanical. Use your pre-shot routine, one feel, something related to what you're working on, uh, and you'll be golden. Very nice. And here's the last question for today. Um, what's the first thing you look at as a coach when you're starting a lesson? So the first thing you notice, the first thing you're looking for when a student comes into your room and, and you start that lesson. To be honest, I don't really think there's an answer uh, that's uniform from one lesson to the next or universal, I should say. Um, 
you know, I have a conversation. If if we're talking about we're dealing with a first time student, because you can make the assumption that any other any player who comes to see me who's already taken a lesson with me, we already know where we're looking. We already know what we've worked on in the past. We already know what direction the player is going. I already know what we're going to do more often than not, assuming the player did the work. And then we'll analyze it and see and make an assessment in the first 10, 15 minutes if the player did the work well, how they're progressing, what percentage of the work they've achieved, and so on. So for anybody who comes to see me for the, more than the first time, that answer is a pretty easy one because you know the player. If it's a first-time player, I usually spend the first 10-15 minutes when they're warming up, and I'm saying literally 10-15 minutes because I'm not going to start talking two seconds into the lesson where it's like the guy hits one ball and looks back at me. Like, let's take it easy and take a step back here, right? Which is also why I'm not a fan of half-an-hour lessons, and I'm equally not a big fan of one-hour lessons. If I had the choice, everybody would work for 90 minutes or two hours. It's kind of the standard I like to have with my players. Tour players, I'll do three, four hours because we're working on multiple things and it's a professional. For the everyday weekend golfer, I typically prefer two hours if I had the choice, 90 minutes at the minimum. Unfortunately, some people don't have that time, so you have to do one-hour lessons, but not ideal. So in the first 10, 15 minutes, typically what I'll do is um, I'll have a conversation with them, talk about their background in the game, talk about how often they practice, talk about how often they score, maybe if they hit a shot that is kind of like an outlier shot relative to the five or six previous ones, ask them if that happens often or if it's just here. Uh, and then you make the assessment yourself based on all the variables. Is it a strike location issue? Are they really struggling to find the center of the face? Is it a curvature issue? Is their face-to-path really not good? Is it that they want to rely on less timing and they're hitting it pretty good, but they just want to make it even better? There's a lot that goes into it. So through the questions that you're going to ask the player at the start of the lesson and through the visuals of what you're seeing over the course of maybe 15, 20 balls, you can make an assessment on where you need to start. But the answer is not universal. You cannot start at the same place every time uh, because at the end of the day, you're not necessarily going to have everybody coming in for the same issue the game is so subjective that i can't come in and be like hey your club face is an issue every single time because that's not true awesome yeah so that would be my answer for that so i think we should get started with the um interview interview at this point uh michelle holmes kills it really good interview uh really happy to have our first female if i'm not mistaken on the show we're trying to get more on i have a couple of people in line uh, i would love to showcase more females in the industry they're doing a wonderful job and i um, really happy to uh show michelle so let's get it rolling all right michelle so we're just gonna get this party started right away um just for those who maybe aren't necessarily aware of your coaching, can you just give uh, a little intro? Yeah, I'm, so I'm, I'm based out of Virginia. Um, I have three kids golf schools here, and we're pretty much 100% um, kids golf at this point. And we didn't necessarily mean to go that route, but the kids just keep us so busy, so we're pretty much 100% kids right now. And we have three locations here in Southern Virginia, and yeah, we're just having a ton of fun with the kids. Sweet. Can you uh, talk to us about your own coaching right now? Um, or let's say uh, your history of the game. Did you play a lot growing up? Yeah, so you probably hear the accent. So I'm from Ireland. So I grew up playing junior golf in Ireland. And um, I started when I was 10 years old. And um, my dad introduced me to the game. He used to take me to the local driving range. And I, um, the pro asked me one day at the driving range, hey, would you, you mind standing in? And we have a little junior golf contest. So I stood in and I beat everyone there. And I won a little trophy and I won two movie theater tickets. And my mom let me take my friend to the movies the next day. So I was like, I got to go back next Friday and win these things again. And that's how I became hooked on golf. So, um, you know, then of course, dad had to take me from the driving range then to the golf course and um, started playing competitively. And ended up playing junior golf for Ireland. And then I got recruited to play college golf at Campbell University in North Carolina. So I came across to North Carolina and played four years of college golf there. And then um, entered the LPGA program after that to become a LPGA teaching instructor then. Did you ever have any aspirations of taking your professional career into playing? Or did you kind of know after school that you were going to jump into coaching? And no, I always knew I was going to be in coaching. If I hadn't been, if I wasn't doing what I'm doing now, I probably would have been an elementary school teacher. So I always knew I was going to be involved in kids' growth and develop, development in some aspect. But my junior golf coach, and his name was Charlie McGoldrick, 
and he was the most amazing junior coach and I just kind of always felt like I want to do what he does and I remember like distinctively I was about 14 years old and I was on the ninth tee box and I was playing in a in a club competition with like three ladies and one of the ladies said to me on the ninth tee box she said oh do you want to play on the tour one day and I, I always remember this moment and I was like no I want to do what Charlie does and I think from that moment on it kind of hit me you know, I'm dead. I hope I can go down the coaching route with it, and of course, been lucky enough to do that. So, um, what brought you to the uh, the US was the scholarship. So the scholarship, yes, yeah. so I got recruited to play for um, Campbell University. So I had um, pretty much a full scholarship there. Played there for four years, um, best four years of my life. And North Carolina was a little bit of a culture shock. So four years was enough there. I did enjoy it, but it was enough. And then. Um, Right about when I was kind of looking for my first job out of college, my sister was about to come over to America and play college golf. So she um, she got offered a scholarship to play golf for Old Dominion University. And right around that time, I got offered a job in the area. So we decided, you know what, we're going to go to Virginia, be together and see what happens. So now we're both here in this area, both teaching professionals and working together. Um, so yeah, it's worked out really nice. That's amazing. When you... Um when you got that job, did you think that there was a chance that you wouldn't be going back to uh, cross the pond? Um, I think when I came to America first, I always said, okay, I'm going to America. I'm going to play college golf. Um, I'm going to go back to Ireland. But I fell in love with America. And, and I guess in, in this career, I'm very lucky in that I do get to go home a lot. Um, I generally do spend every December. I, well, I spent the last, the last six or seven years, I've spent every November, December and January in Ireland. So I, you have the best of both worlds. I get to live here and there. That's sweet. So you still get time to go see the fam? Get to see the family. And then they all come out here for the summer. So uh, my mom and dad come out every summer. I've got a little brother who's 16. He comes out, spends the summers out here. So, yeah, I feel like I get to see my parents as much as, you know, people who live, you know, an hour from their parents over here. Sounds familiar to me too. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So let's, let's jump into junior coaching then. Obviously, you know, we see it on the internet that you're clearly a specialist in what you do. Um, and I, and I think you're doing a phenomenal job with that. I just wanted to know, uh, I guess just as a starting point, what, what made your decision to want to go, uh, into working with kids? I know that you said you had a fascination with it with, you know, otherwise becoming an elementary school teacher, but like, I would like to know what, what about working with kids got you excited? Um, well, yes, I was always going to be around kids. I guess for me, um, you know, with coaching kids, it's really about taking them on a journey. Um, for me, it's, it's a huge honor to be asked to be a kid's golf coach because it's so much more than, you know, golf lessons. It's, you know, you're really involved with that child's whole life. You know, a lot of these kids, you get them at seven years old and, you know, they have aspirations of becoming high school golfers or college golfers or even bigger aspirations than that. And they're asking you to take them on a golf journey. So you're really committing yourself to becoming, you know, to taking them on this roller coaster of a journey that we know it is. And you're committed to not only helping them become better athletes, but you're helping them become better people. And you're seeing this unfold in front of you. And, you know, you're a role model to these kids and their parents are entrusting you with a lot. And you're, you're involved in everything from their emotional well-being to become a better athlete, to become a better human being. So just being able to be involved in that whole journey, that's what means a lot to me. So it's clearly way more personal working with kids, obviously, than it would be if you're just like seeing an adult once every three weeks for an hour and then there's not much communication happening back and forth. <laughs> yeah, well, I felt, you know, when I started, you know, when I was an assistant pro back in the day, my first job out of college. You know, I knew, I knew, I knew kids was what I wanted to do, but I think that kind of reassured me because I just felt like, um, and maybe it's just me and my personality, but I felt like when I was teaching adults, you know, they were coming and they were taking, you know, they were coming and doing six lessons and they wanted, you know, to improve. Um, but it wasn't that whole life journey with them, of course. And um, so I think it's just, it's, it's about, you know, helping that child in, not in golf, but in life as well. Would you say that that's the most obvious difference between working with kids and, and adults? Um, oh, wow. There's a lot of difference with that. Um, okay, let me just think about some of these differences. Okay, so here, um, I'll, I'll, I'll make this question a little more, I guess, specific. Okay. Within, within the actual lesson itself, what have you noticed is the biggest difference? Like, in, Is it the personality and the way you're communicating with them? 
Um, obviously kids, I would imagine learn very differently. So you can't get as technical. I would just like to hear like your side of how you approach it differently. Yeah. I mean, I guess the biggest thing is attention span. I mean, obviously kids don't have, uh, kids have an, a shorter attention span and they can get easily disengaged if the activity is not stimulating or fun. So, you know, let's say if I have a, a class, a 45 minute class of six year olds, well, in that 45 minutes, I feel I'm probably going to get six minutes of complete focus or attention from them. Okay. Wow. So probably a minute per year of life. So let's say I have a 45-minute class, because you can't do six-minute classes, right? Right. So for a 45-minute class, I'm probably going to be able to really, you know, what we would call instruction um, for about six minutes, okay? So then for the other 39 minutes, you know, we're going back to game-based learning where I'm setting up games for the kids. And, of course, these games correspond to whatever the, the instruction has been for the day. So for those other 39 minutes, those games are helping these kids stay engaged, stay interactive, and it's allowing that learning process to continue. You know, that child has no idea they're learning at this point, and they might even forget that I'm there. But I guarantee they're going to get more out of that 39 minutes than they are out of the six minutes that I was standing there, you know, demonstrating or, or lecturing. Right. So you're, you're basically trying to make them learn without them feel like they're sitting down having to listen to you to learn. Exactly, exactly. And then... Um, what else is different? You know, I guess the most fun thing for me, you know, teaching kids is the no fear factor. I mean, I think we can all admit that. I mean, these little kids have absolutely no fear. They're not overanalyzing. They hit a bad shot. They fail at something. They just get back up and try again. And, you know, whereas us adults, we tend to overanalyze everything. And that's something I talk to parents about a lot. You know, kids are competing so young these days. Like my niece just competed in a U.S. kids tour last um, last. Um, last fall and she, she was four years old when the tour started. I mean, kids are competing so young. So I wow. find parents come, come to me and parents come to me and say, Oh, you know, my seven year old just doesn't seem to care. And I'm like, look at appreciate this innocence because pretty soon they're going to be 13 years old, walking down the fairway in a tournament, head down and not being able to get over a bad golf shot. So like, you know, when you gotta let them have this innocence for as long as we can. So when they when they're not getting upset about a golf shot, when they don't seem to care, you know, just don't worry about that. I'm always telling parents not to worry about that. That will I mean, come it, in time. It's it's almost a positive thing, right? Where it's like they don't get oh, so far yeah. into their head with everything going on. Wouldn't you want to ride that wave for as long as possible? Oh, exactly. I mean, you know, with my niece, I guess it's on it. Of course, I'm on a real personal level with all my kids, but especially obviously with my niece and. Um, it's taken to another level, but you know, she's five years old now. She completed, competed on a tour last season. She's got no idea that there's even such a thing as a bad golf shot. Like she did, she wouldn't even like, we've never, we've never commented on a shot. We've never said anything. She hits a bad golf shot and she just goes, hits it again. She has absolutely no concept. Right. Cause she, cause she literally doesn't know. Right. Yeah. She doesn't know. So we try to keep this as long, as long as possible. And then probably the other thing um, that I find different with, you know, coaching kids is co kids have such kids are under extreme pressure. You know, when an adult comes to a golf lesson, yes, an adult comes and they want to get better, and they, you know, they have this self pressure. Like, think about these little kids. They've got their own self pressure. They want to become better, right? And then they've got the pressure of the parents. They've got the pressure of the high school coach. They've got the pressure of the grandparents. They've got the pressure of living out the college dream. I mean, they've got so many pressures on them. So again, going back to as a coach. You know, when they teach an adult, um, you know, it's about making them better physically and better able as a golfer. But with kids, um, it's a lot more about that, not just that physical and becoming a better athlete. It's about emotional well-being. I like that. So if, if a parent comes to you and they're considering, because I'm sure there's a lot of parents that are going to listen to this that have kids and they're going to learn a lot just from, you know, your insight and how to go about trying to help them get better and all that. But um, mm -hmm. Is there a certain age that you tend to refuse if it's like so young that the person is just so excited to want to bring their kid and you're like, look, give them some time, let them feel comfortable, <laughs> let them feel comfortable before jumping um, the gun where they can't even stand kind of thing? You know, it really just depends. I mean, you know, it might sound crazy that I just said my niece played in a, in a tour last season, right? But there's no problem with kids sports and kids competition as long as the team of adults around them are doing their job correctly. 
So it really oh, just I like depends. That. I mean, I have no, I have no problem sending my niece out to play in a tournament because I know my sister's on the sideline, her dad's on the sideline, and you know they're doing the right things. That's that's so really, really just, good. Yeah. So it has it has as much to do with the parents as it does with the kids. Oh, exactly. I mean, she learned so much during that tour. I mean, it was, and not just about, she became a better golfer, but just life things like, you know, the first tournament, she was too shy to shake hands. She was too shy to walk up for her medal at the end. By the end of the last tournament, she took her ball out of the hole and she turned around and put her hands out to the other caddies and said, thanks, you know, enjoy being with you guys today. You know, she's, she seemed like a little adult and, you know, she walked up for, for that medal and um, proudly and confidently. And those were the little things that we were like, yes, this means the world to us. It's amazing. So what are your, um, what are your thoughts on parents who, when they bring their kids, they want to watch the whole lesson? Cause obviously you get a wide range of people who are going to come yeah. and sometimes it's like, Oh, I don't yeah. know what you're going to tell my kid. I want to be able to be there and listen to it. So do you have any opinions on that? Yeah. Um, so, you know, back when we started the Academy first, we had both ends. We had parents who just didn't want to be there. They just dropped their kids off and left. And we had parents who wanted to be there. So kind of as we, we saw both sides of it, and um, we started looking at the positives and the negatives, okay, and which one is you know going to outweigh the other. And the positives of not having a parent in a golf lesson or standing at the sidelines of a golf class, you know, the, the obvious things like the dynamic between the child and the and the coach, and the dynamic between the child and other kids, and you know, the, the child can focus more when there's less pressure on the child if the parent's not there therefore they can focus more and so on they're not worried about what mom is going to lecture them on after practice and so on so we felt for a learning environment that was better but then we had to look at the negativity of it okay what are the negative parts if we do not allow these parents to to come to golf class or practices and the only negative we could come up with is that okay you know, if a nine-year-old is coming to me once a week for a golf lesson, okay, let's say they're coming for a 30-minute golf lesson, a 40-minute golf lesson, and this nine-year-old genuinely wants to become better at golf, well, then something's going to have to happen between now and the next lesson, right? Some practice has to happen, some on-course time has to happen. So the only negativity, so who's bringing that child? It's going to be the parent. The parent really is a coach to that child. I mean, I I hear people say, oh, let let the coaches do the coaching with the parents do the parenting in golf it's different because it's an individual sport and that child needs that parent to go help them in between golf lessons so the negativity then we were looking at was how how how, the, how is the parent going to know what to help the child with so then we decided you know in our program what we do is you know after each golf lesson and um, the child we give the child a little worksheet and the child has to fill out you know what I learned today and what I have to work on for the next lesson and then the way we do our lessons we do a 30 minute golf lesson and we have a 15 minute break so that allows us to kind of talk to the parents give them a little kind of review of what we've just done and then more often than not we're actually you know at the end of a lesson we might just do a quick little video saying hey let's let's just show mom and dad what we worked on today and a little review and I'll, I'll just text that to their phone and I'll say, hey, the only thing I'm going to ask you to do is when you're, um, you're helping your child, just make sure that you're using the same vocabulary as I am in the, in the, in the lesson so that we're not confusing the child. Because oftentimes the dad might be trying to t- teach the child the same thing, but we're using different vocabulary and then the child's confused. So we found for our program that has worked. The parents seem happy. You know, they're getting the feedback. The children seem happier and they're more relaxed in golf lessons and they're able to the learning experience is becoming better and the coaches are happy. So it's a win-win for everyone. That's a, that's honestly a great answer. I mean, you know, it's one thing to be there with the child during the lesson. It's a completely a whole other ball game of, you know, trying to structure, I guess, the lesson in a way where, you know, exactly what they're going to do or what the homework is for that person and for the parent, right. Um, Mm -hmm. Between lessons so that, you know, there's no confusion or, you know, they don't get to that expectation that they had coming back to you, let's say the week later. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, that I always tell parents, you're their biggest coach. I mean, I, I, I don't know if it's, it's different in other sports. I know that like the parent to the parents, and the coach to the coaching. But in this sport, if you've got a nine-year-old and you can only afford to put that nine-year-old in lessons once a week, well, then you are helping your child another maybe four or five, four or five hours a week. So, you know, parents have a tough role. I mean, 
I work a lot on the tournament side of things too. I run tournaments for US Kids Golf and I run tournaments for Virginia State Golf Association. So I see it all. And parents haven't got an easy job. They got to be parents. They got to be caddy. They got to be coach. They got to be teammates. And you know, it's it's not an easy thing for them. But um, I mean, we're just trying to best inform them as we can as we go along. Have you noticed a difference in how much better or how much enjoyment the kid gets uh, if it's that type of parent versus one that just like drops them off and leaves? Um, I definitely, it, it's definitely more um, relaxed for the child. And just, you know, especially as well, when you're, when you're talking about taking this child on a golf journey, you've got to get to know that child on a personal level. You know, so these things, these kids come in and talk to me about, um, you know, that I know that they wouldn't talk about if the parent was standing there. You know, so it's, right. it's not just about the physical part of the game. You know, it's, it's about much more than more than that. So I the like kids it. are freer to, to, to be able to explore that side of things. When the I mean, to, to some degree, they're seeing you as like a, an ex, like a third parent, right? Where they can confide oh, in you sure. in a lot of things. Oh, for sure. You're a coach, you're a friend, you're a psychologist, you're everything. <laughs> So I, here's, here's a good one for you. What, uh, what surprised you the most in working with kids? Is there something that like you you kind of didn't think was going to be that way when you got into it? Like, did, was it just like, you know, you started working with kids and everything kind of played out the way you thought, or was there something that surprised you? You're like, Oh, I didn't think kids would act this way or do this, or maybe they're more susceptible to information than what you were expecting. Um, I guess, I guess, at the beginning, I just didn't realize how involved I would get in their whole lives. I guess that's, you know, you think of, you know, back in the day when you think of, okay, you teach kids and you help them get better. I just didn't, ex- I didn't expect it to become all this. Right. Is that, is that kind of answering that question? I'm not sure if that's answering that question. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, at the end of the day, it was just, I just was just curious of, you know, once you're, you're dealing with the kids, if there was something that stood out that you're like, fuck, I really didn't think you know, the kids, uh, the, the kids going to confide in me, let's say, in all this kind of personal information, you know? Oh, oh, yes. I mean, there's things, there's sometimes where they're confiding in me and I'm like, okay, this conversation's got to stop now. I don't need to be hearing this part, you know, some maybe things the parents wouldn't want me to hear or whatnot. Um, sure. But yeah, you're like a second parent. You're a parent, you're, you're, you're a friend, you're a shrink, you're everything to these, these, these kids. So what are your thoughts on um, kids playing multiple sports as opposed to just playing golf? Because I'm sure that there are some parents out there who just want their kids kind of in one sport and they're pushing it really hard. And even if they excel at that sport, I mean, there's so many studies that have been done of saying that it's way more beneficial for someone to be playing a wide range of sports growing up. Um, I would just like your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, I got in a big, I put up a post last week on Facebook and my, my phone nearly blew up. It was last Tuesday night and my phone nearly blew up with so many people commenting on it. And it was about, you know, parents shouldn't be specializing in sports. And so the big, the big question then that was like, okay, well, what age should we specialize? If, if our child wants to go play golf or Duke, if that's the child's dream, like, well, we can't just be playing, you know, golf in the summertime and playing basketball then in fall, you know, we, you have to commit. So I guess the biggest thing is, what I always say is, you really need to focus, yes, improvement, but you really need to focus on all kinds of sports. Um, every sport's going to benefit the next sport. you got to focus on enjoyment. you really got to get that kid to age 13 with a huge passion for the game. And again, I think that comes with you know, if, they ha- if they're not burnt out at that point and uh, not being burnt out, huge, we can thank multiple sports for that. So, um, um, yeah, yeah, I mean, there's no benefit to specializing too young. But yes, I, I guess by the time you get to 14, I guess you really got to start thinking, okay, what am I going to, what am I going to really focus on and knuckle down on? But I would even say at that point, you know, if at 14, you decide, you know what, I want to play college golf or Wake Forest or whoever, and I really need to knuckle down and, and do this, then, you know, still keep other sports, you know, even if it's swimming or something you do once a week, just something else to, um, to keep on, on the side. I like it. So what, uh, at what point um, or how long has it been now that you've been working exclusively with juniors? So, okay, good question. Um, 2020, um, I forget how old I am sometimes, so I got into the math. Um, <laughs> so I started in probably 2009, 2010, so 10 years. 
Um, and yeah, it's been it's been a great ride with it. I I I feel like we ha- I'm very lucky in that we have a kids golf school and we've three locations. Um, so we get to work with a lot of juniors. Um, and then we're involved again, as I said earlier, I work on the tournament side of things. So yeah, I, I would definitely like to hear. I would like to hear more about that too. What? How did you get involved with the tournament side of it? Um, what are the biggest aspects that you are responsible for when it comes to that too? Yeah, so I work for U.S. Kids Golf, and I work for um, Virginia State Golf Association. So um, for the Virginia Virginia State Golf Association, I probably run about thirty tournaments a year, and it's more of a developmental tour. Um, I run nine hole tournaments on Sundays that are for kids. Um, five through 14 um it's you know kid appropriate team markers and then um in the summertime when the school the high schoolers are out i run 18 whole tournaments for them and then i work for u.s kids golf as well i run their local tour here in hampton roads i do their state championships their regional championships and world championships so i get to see it on all different levels um, but I, you know, a lot of people say, oh, kids shouldn't be competing young. But again, like I said earlier, I think, I think competition is great for kids. Um, and I also think it's a great way for kids to get out and learn how to play the game. I mean, how, how many times do we hear in this sport, you know, whether it's from kids or even adults, you know, I took my golf lessons, oh, but I just haven't got out in the golf course. I mean, we're seeing that in golf so much. Yeah. So I think it's just a great way for kids to get out and learn the game. To, you know, to learn the game more and again it really goes back to what is the team of adults around them doing you know people you know let's say a kid who's maybe not the greatest golfer their mom and dad might come and say okay is he ready to sign up for u.s kids golf and i'm like what do you mean ready what are you expecting are you ready yeah <laughs> yeah he's fine to go play u.s kids golf it's and almost like the parents have an expert is it because the parents have an expectation of like they only want their kid to join if they think the kid can win every tournament they enter? Exactly. Um, whereas we know, you know, when I played my first junior golf tournament, um, I played, it was my first 18, well, there was no nine hole tournaments back then. It just wasn't a thing back then. So it was my first 18 hole golf tournament and I shot 127, you know, and I yeah. think my group was the last, last group of the golf course and we were so far behind and, you know, but you know and then I became obviously you know I think my lowest handicap was one point something but that didn't just didn't just happen overnight you know I shot 127 then I shot 125 then 124 whereas I just don't think parents are um sometimes parents don't don't see that right you know they just see that kid who's shooting 36 but they don't realize well that kid who's shooting 36 when he joined the tour he might have been shooting 49 and he just worked on it. So, you know, as you know, golf's about self-improvement. So I'm always trying to tell these parents, yes, your child is ready to go out and play nine holes. I trust that they can get the ball from the tee to the hole in a reasonable amount of shots and a reasonable amount of time. Am I telling you they're going to win the tournament? No, but yes, they're ready to go play. And yes, they might shoot 54, but let's come back next week and try and shoot 53. Yeah, that's a that's a good that's a good way to put it. I mean, at the end of the day, even if the player is good enough from a technical perspective, it doesn't necessarily mean they're going to feel comfortable playing against other people. Playing and, the game. Yeah, exactly. And I'm big into well, as as I said earlier too with my niece, I'm big into throwing kids out there young because there's a great innocence with it. You know, where it is tough for a kid when they come in at 12 years old and they are so far behind the ball game. You know, it is tough at that age. Um. So I'm a big fan of when they're five, six years old, throw them out there. And at least they're learning how to play the game. Yeah, I, I like you know, that. We're not so much worried about score and, the, and the, the child's not worried about score and the child has no clue. They're just chasing a golf ball. So as long as, again, going back to as long as you parents are doing the right thing, we're all good. <laughs> so let's talk about you then for a second. I know that um, <laughs> obviously you've been, you've been junior coaching for a long time. Have you noticed a shift where you're starting to mentor um, other junior coaches coming up. I would imagine that yes. quite a few, that quite a few people are contacting you because you're obviously all over social media, but you're so good at what you do and you're winning all these awards and you're obviously very skilled at your yeah. job. I would imagine a lot of young up and coming coaches who want to work with kids are contacting you. Yeah, I do get that a lot. And I, and I love that part of it. And I guess I really love that part of it because so many people were so good to me. And um, 
when when I first came into came into the business. I had a great mentor here in the Hampton Road area. His name is Mike Fentress. He was my first boss. He was always so encouraging and taught me so much. Um, and now two of our actually two of our academies are, are based at at two of his golf courses. But again, you know, going back to people at US Kids Golf, I mean, so many people have encouraged me and helped me on my journey and helped me become a better coach, just show me the ways. And so I'm more than happy to do that for other young coaches. Cool. Um, I know that you attend the PGA show um, quite often. Did you go this past year? I did. Okay. I went this past year and I kind of treated it a little differently this past year. Usually when I go, I try and do a lot of the seminars and stuff and this year, I, I went and kind of just um, spent more time walking the show floors and networking. And, you know, it's just it's such a great opportunity to, you know, see what's new out there in the business and, you know, just catch up with friends and, and all that. So when you, uh, what was the first year that you went to the show? I went to the show probably um, my first year. Actually, I haven't been going that long, probably four years ago. What was your, I'm, I, I'm, always, I'm always curious of people's opinions on this. What was your first thought when you walked in? Was it like, holy crap, that's a lot of people? I had absolutely no clue what it was going to be like. I had <laughs> absolutely, it's, it's crazy. I mean, I still feel like even this time I spent, you know, a good three days kind of, you know, walking the floor, probably doing more talking than looking, but um, I still feel like you still don't see everything in three days. Yeah. Like, it's an insane amount of stuff insane amount of stuff I, mem- I remember the first time i went a few years ago it was kind of a similar experience and it w- i just walked in and i was like there is no chance that i can walk into every single booth and and even get through 40 yeah. percent of it i mean there's just no time <laughs> yeah. and i think now that we're a little more invested in the, in the in the industry i'm kind of like you like i walk around and then someone's going to bump into me that recognize me or that wants to talk to me or yeah. someone that i know on a personal level and then you just chit chat yeah. and then it's like, you know, the last three hours went away. You haven't even walked into anything. You're just talking to people. That's exactly my experience with this. Were you there this year or no? No, this is the first year actually that I didn't go in, in a little bit. Um, just some personal coaching here. And to be honest, once you go a few times, if you're not actually in, um, involved in some way in the coaching conference, I typically think like, you know, you've kind of seen the whole spiel of what's going on. Yeah, I I yeah I do I do agree with that yes I do we kind of make a little vacation out of it too I I feel so yeah I get you we usually go down for a full week and spend maybe three days of the show three or four days of the show and kind of make it a little vacation out of it as well yeah but I get what you're saying with that's, that yeah so this year I wasn't involved in the coaching conference so I decided just you know I'll I'll stay back and get some work done over here so here uh, I have one last question for you Michelle and then I'll let you uh, okay. go take care of your uh, your golf schools. I just, I was just curious, how did you uh, start your social media page? What made you want to get on the internet to begin with? Have you noticed it being a big part of your business? Do people contact you from that to bring their kids in? Uh, yeah, just social media. That was such a surprise to me. I mean, we have developed quite a big social media following. When I set up social media, I didn't have that in mind. Um, so people always ask me, how did you grow your social media? Well, originally, um, I am a very creative person. I love a camera. Um, so originally, I just started posting things on the school Facebook page. And of course, parents are sharing it and whatnot. And, um, you know, it was helping business. But I think what really kind of struck me one day, I was on the putting green with a class. And I overheard one of the little boys telling another little boy that he was on Coach Michelle's TV. And I was like, what is he talking about Coach Michelle's TV? And he seemed really excited about this. And there was a big buzz about being on Coach Michelle's TV. Then I realized his mom had showed him his video on my Facebook page. Oh, wow. And to see how excited he was about that. So you know, before that, I hadn't really thought about doing it for the kids' behalf. And I was doing it more as a marketing promotional thing for the school. But once I once I saw that reaction, then it kind of motivated me, to, you know, to also post, you know, for for the kids' sake as well. So, um, so usually what I do then is, you know, in a golf lesson, I usually throw the camera down and I just record the the whole lesson. And you know, a cute moments will happen, and I'll be like, all right, I must go back and look at that later. So I'll go back <laughs> that evening, and you know, just crop out that little cute part and uh, you know posted social media and it just seems to have it seems to have blown up and um, you know we post a lot we obviously have a lot of cute kids a lot of cute moments and i think people just kind of love the innocence of that and they love watching this 
So would you say that part of the excitement of posting is not even so much to generate any sort of business? It's just the excitement of the kids being on, on your Instagram page? Yeah, ex- exactly. But then I, I have noticed too, you know, especially with our Instagram and it, in the last couple of years, I've realized how much it's helping other parents, you know, people I've never met, like people from Australia, people from, like I was at the World Championships last year and people kept coming up to me and they said, you know, people were saying things like, oh, you know that quote you, you put up about, you know, the one quote people always, always come to me about is I always say, you know, how your child performs on a golf course at age 10 has no bearing on their future, how you react has every bearing. And the amount of parents who've came up and said, you know what, I printed that out, I put it on my fridge, or even <laughs> at the World Championship last year showed me they had met a curing of it, you know? So wow. it's things like that. I'm like, okay, now I real, realize you know, I'm actually helping people out there. It's not just cute videos. I'm actually helping people that I've never even met before. The power of social so, media. Yeah, so to me, if I'm helping some children out there get a better golf experience, you know, helping their parents keep them on a better golf journey, then that's, that's worth it to me. I love it. Well, I'm, I'm really happy you came on, Michelle. Obviously, I wanted to feature you because, you know, I've been, we've been social media friends for a while and I keep seeing all the great work time. you're doing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and um, <laughs> honestly, if I can feature a wide range of people and, and you know, you being a specialist, uh, I definitely wanted to have you on. So I appreciate you spending some time with me here. And um, yeah, I think people are really going to enjoy this episode. Honestly, I think there's a lot of parents who are going to take some notes in, in what you're saying. Okay, well, thank you very much for having me, and let's keep in touch. All right, Michelle, take care. All right, okay, thank you. Bye-bye, have a good day. So that was the episode with Michelle. Really hope you guys enjoyed that one. Obviously, uh, there's a lot of recent news going on in the industry. Everything is being postponed. NBA, MLB, MLS, obviously the golf NHL, Formula One. The golf industry obviously fell in line with everybody else, so there's going to be no golf. There are PGA Tour Canada Q School events that are canceled. There are uh, Corn Ferry Tour, Champions Tour, PGA Tour, European Tour events that are all cancelled up until the Masters, including the Masters, which is postponed. Huge. Postponed, not cancelled, keyword. Huge. Um, which is obviously huge. And so we're going to have a little bit more free time. I mean, at the end of the day, my tour players are still working on what they got to do. It's not as though we're all shutting it down because that would be the wrong decision. But at the same time, uh, we do have a little bit more free time. Some people are kind of nervous for the virus, which is totally understandable. So uh, as a result of that, we're debating maybe releasing two episodes at some point in the same week. Yeah, I think maybe if you guys want, send the Shine a message if you're interested in having two episodes this week or every week moving forward or if you have ideas for guests or topics you want us to talk about because, I mean, we've been dictating the topics and the guests so far, but uh, seeing that more people will be home listening or at least home in general uh, with the opportunity to listen, we can maybe, you know, make those people happy and kind of give them what they want. So, yeah. And I won't say who the next two guests are. We'll keep it a surprise for now, but one of them is a big timer on ESPN. Who's been doing it for a long time. One of my good friends loves the game of golf. That's going to be a fun episode. And the next one is another putting specialist. So, um, social media guru, you guys have for sure seen him. He works with a bunch of tour players uh, and kind of got big on social media around the time that I was starting my social media at the same time. So let's see um, if they can figure it out. We have a mutual respect for each other. Um, yeah, I'm sure a lot of people already figured it out. If not, that's fine. You can go through social media and try to see who it is. Uh, he's a putting guy. So yeah if you guys would like uh that's certainly something we can do so um as always be sure to subscribe to the pod be sure to check us out on social media nak giovanni golf skiing golf you know where to find us and uh, we'll see you all next week wash your hands